We want our children to have the best chance to live fulfilling lives. But can you keep up with all the books and scientific research on parenting and fit the information into your own philosophy on how to raise kids? Welcome to Your Parenting Mojo, the podcast that does the work for you by investigating and examining respectful, research-based parenting tools to help kids thrive. Now, welcome your host, Jen Lumenlon. and welcome to today's episode of the Your Parenting Mojo podcast. Following on from our recent episode on the 30 million word gap, today we're going to take another close look at a piece of classic research. This time we're looking at the marshmallow study. You've probably heard of this study because it's one of the most famous ones in the field of psychology. Dr. Walter Mischel and his colleagues presented a preschooler with a marshmallow. The child was told that the researcher had to leave the room for a period of time and the child could either wait until the researcher returned and have two marshmallows or if the child couldn't wait, they could call the researcher back by ringing a bell, but then they'd only get to have one marshmallow. The idea was to figure out how delayed gratification develops, and in later studies, to understand its importance in our children's lives and academic success. I was actually surprised to find that the marshmallow study consisted of a series of studies starting in the early 1960s and continuing for over a decade. And my guest today, Dr. Tyler Watts of New York University, has just published a new study with his colleagues to try and help us understand whether the impacts of delayed gratification really are as large as that body of research indicates. Dr. Watts is a research assistant professor and postdoctoral scholar in the Steinhardt School of Culture, Education, and Human Development at New York University. He received his BA from the University of Texas at Austin and his PhD from the University of California, Irvine. Welcome, Dr. Watts. Hi, thank you. So I wonder if you could start out just by setting a bit of context for us. Can you describe this series of experiments that's become known as the marshmallow study? And what, what was the basic procedure that was used and what did the researchers find? Sure. You, you had the uh, exact same experience that I did as, uh, <laughs> as you were working on this. Okay, good. I, I had first heard about these studies when I was an undergraduate at UT, at University of Texas. I was a psychology student, and I think I probably first heard about it in the intro to psych course and then you know some sort of developmental class. We probably covered it there, too. And then when we started, me and uh, Greg, the second author on this paper, started kind of sniffing around to decide if we wanted to, to look into this. I started going back and reading Michelle's original papers. And then, of course, I realized the same thing. This was done over probably a decade. And there were a series of different studies as he was kind of tweaking the marshmallow test and sort of figuring out what it was telling him along the way. So I think people first have to realize kind of where the state of psychology was in the 60s when Michelle first started doing this work. It was a whole nother time. <laughs> we, were, <laughs> we were coming out of, of course, the sort of classic psychoanalysis, Freud and Jung and those guys. So, so that era had kind of ended. And then we, were, we had gone through the sort of behavioral scientist aspects like the behaviorist period, which is sort of the kind of like rigid rules of sort of human learning and conditioning. And then we were, you know, cognitive psychology was really sort of coming online. And we were really starting to sort of have a new approach to probing at people's thinking and, and figuring out sort of how human beings, what are the kind of like limits to human cognition and the ways in which we can, uh, we were really coming up with kind of new ways to study it. So Michelle is really kind of coming into this discussion at a really interesting time. And people had, I think, assumed and, and predicted that 
being able to delay gratification was this kind of important life skill that uh, probably set aside or differentiated sort of what we think of as sort of successful adults from less successful adults. And people didn't know if children could really do this. And if they could do it, they didn't really know how to measure it. And so in psychology, you know, measurement is, is everything. So Michelle started coming up with this test to be able to actually produce variation in kids' ability to delay gratification. And the test is known as the marshmallow test. And he figured out that if you sat a four-year-old, some, a kid around the age of four, in front of a marshmallow, and you told them that if they wait to eat the marshmallow or to touch the marshmallow until the experimenter returns to the room, then they'll be rewarded with a second marshmallow. So basically, the kid is, is given this test, right, where they, they have something sitting in front of them that they want, and they're told by an adult that if they can wait to engage with it or wait to eat it, that they're going to be rewarded with a second thing, right, with the double, double the amount of, of that reward. Mm-hmm. And he very kind of wisely figured out that this test illuminated all sorts of interesting stuff about the way kids think and the way they behave under kind of a sort of stressful, somewhat stressful situation. And he realized that from a measurement standpoint, that the test did exactly what he wanted, which is it produced variation, right? So some some kids were better at this than other kids. So there would be some kids who couldn't wait at all. And as soon as the experimenter left the room, they would reach out and grab the marshmallow. (laughs) Then there are some kids who would be able to wait for a couple minutes. And then there are some kids who would be able to wait for whatever length of time they were left alone. And in some of the trials, he didn't, I, I think he capped it pretty, at a pretty short amount and kids weren't able to wait for very long. And then longer and longer periods of time, he, he would kind of test longer and longer periods of time as he went along. And then he also had figured out, and I think this is one thing that a lot of people don't realize is he kind of put a lot of different constraints on the test mm-hmm. as he, as he went along. So he was interested in like, you know, what happens if you obscure the marshmallow from a kid's vision? So are kids able to, to wait longer if you don't force them to look at the marshmallow, right, in the room? What if you suggest to them before they do the task sort of strategies to help distract them from the marshmallow? Mm-hmm. So if, if, if you give them strategies to help them wait longer, are they able to do it? What kind of so strategies he, would, would he use? Yeah, so I, I'm trying to remember exactly, but he would sort of give them, I think, sort of ways to distract themselves. Yeah. So he would sort of suggest sort of like cognitive sort of tricks for distracting, think about something else. Okay, um, think about know, something the, fun or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the kinds of things that, you know, we try to tell ourselves to do today. Yeah. And so he kind of put the kids through all sorts of different constraints on this measure and, you know, it's sort of similar to the research. I don't know if the people in, on your, that, that listen to your podcast would be familiar with Milgram's famous mm-hmm. obedience studies, right? Mm-hmm. But we always talk about sort of one condition of that, which is where the experimenter would tell the person, keep shocking the person on the other end of the line if they're getting these questions wrong. And that's what they would do. But actually, Milgram, I think, spent maybe 15 years or something like that studying all sorts of different conditions around which that experiment was given. And that's, and that's exactly what uh, Walter Michelle did too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Angela Duckworth, who we've actually done an episode on her book, Grit. uh, She, she did a paper on this, I think a while back now. And I thought that the points that she pulled out about why this test was so successful were really salient. And 
we call it the marshmallow test, but actually the child got to choose whether they had a marshmallow or a pretzel or sometimes right. some other food, I think, in, in other studies. So the fact that they get to choose means that they get, you know, if they, if they like sugar, they get a sugary treat. If they like salt, they get a salty treat. Uh, but they only get a really small amount. We're only talking about one or two marshmallows, one or two pretzels. And mm-hmm. so even if the child's really hungry, they know that this isn't going to satisfy that hunger. So it's not like we're seeing the impact of their hunger on the test. <laughs> we hope anyway. So yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, Angela Duckworth studied a few different samples of kids doing this. Mm -hmm. And one of the studies that she did was on the same sample that we actually used for our, Mm. uh, our replication too. So it's important to point out that when Michelle was doing this, he was at Stanford. So he was already fairly (laughs) successful from my perspective. And he was sampling kids from the Stanford preschool community, Mm -hmm. primarily. I I think there were some kids that were were from outside of it too, but basically it was that community, predominantly kids of professors. So they were fairly well-off kids, obviously, whose parents, at least one of their parents was, had presumably a high level degree and was working at one of the best academic institutions in the world. So this is a, a fairly selective sample of kids that uh, that he was working with, but that's not to deride those studies because that's exactly what you did at that. I mean, we, you know, we've had so much work. It's hard to put in perspective. This was going on 50 years ago. We've mm-hmm. had so much work that's sort of changed our thinking about how we should sample, how we should design experiments. And so Michelle was really at the sort of a pioneer in this, in this work. So that was completely normal at that time. Mm-hmm. That you would just take the kids that were around. Yeah. <laughs> right? That made the most sense. Yes. And I think it sort of speaks to the, the white middle class uh, view that, that their way of parenting is the right way. And thus we should, it's appropriate to measure white middle class children because anything that deviates from that approach to parenting is, is different and potentially at a deficit. And I think we've become better at seeing that and working with it now and, and trying to overcome that limitation. But I definitely didn't realize when I started doing this research that we were essentially looking at a tiny sample of children who came from a very advantaged background and, and that these results are being extrapolated out as if they are relevant to all of mankind. Yeah. And that's, you know, one thing to, I, I, I want to be sure that we mentioned, to be fair, in the years since Michelle did this work with the Stanford kids, the marshmallow test has been given to lots of different populations, and mm-hmm. Michelle has been involved in a lot of those studies. So they have done populations with both uh, older kids, kids from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, kids of various racial and ethnic backgrounds. I think I just got a notification that there was a recent study where they were doing it in, I think, Cameroon. So, mm-hmm. you know, there, there's, so they've done all sorts of different uh, sampling designs. Mm-hmm. The, the, key, the key thing, though is that the longitudinal findings, which means what happens when we follow up with the kids that were given the marshmallow test. Mm-hmm. To my knowledge, almost everything we know about the longitudinal nature of what of, of sort of gratification delay and the prediction between the marshmallow test and later outcomes, almost all of that is derived off of that Stanford yeah. sample. Yeah. So the researchers, they actually didn't design it as a longitudinal study, did they? So they didn't even right. bother to collect the addresses of the people who participated. Right, right, right. And then they had to go back and try and find all these people. Again. <laughs> yeah. And it, again, and at that time, it was really innovative to even think longitudinally. Yeah. So, yeah. so, you know, we didn't have a lot of longitudinal data sets. 
And the way that we think about data today is, is so different, largely because of the advances that we've made in, in technology. So what Michelle and his colleagues at the time, which I should mention, uh, Yoshida Shoda, mm-hmm. who is uh, the second author or first author on a lot of these papers. So yeah. they worked really closely on, on many of these. So he had other collaborators. They realized that it would be really interesting to follow up with the kids who did the marshmallow test when they were in preschool and see if there was a correlation between the length of time that the kid waited and other stuff going on in their life. So they, you know, 15, 18 years on decided, let's follow up with the kids and let's see who we can get in touch with. So, of course, they only ended up with a small fraction of the kids mm-hmm. that originally did the test. And then the, the really famous paper, which is the Shota, Michelle, and Rodriguez paper from 1990, that's the one that reports on the follow-up data. Mm-hmm. And that's the one that we were really interested in sort of probing and, and giving a second and closer look to. And so what they find there was that basically they, they contacted uh, mothers of the kids that originally participated, and they, they gave them a survey and among the things that they asked for were SAT scores. And then they also asked for mothers to sort of rate their kids' behavior and personality on a lot of different dimensions. And what they found was, one, that they only found correlations between waiting and or, or wait time right at age four. How long did you wait on the marshmallow test at age four? And later outcomes for what they called the diagnostic condition, which is the kids who were in the sort of what we think of as the classic example of the marshmallow test. They're put in the room with the marshmallow. They can see it or whatever other treat they wanted. They can see the treat. They're not given strategies with which to help them delay. And the treat is in plain sight for them. That's not obscured from their vision. And then, and then the experimenter doesn't tell them how I don't, I'm pretty sure doesn't tell them how long they're going to be. And so then they're just kind of left to wait. That's what Michelle and uh, colleagues ended up calling the diagnostic condition because they found that was the only condition with which waiting predicted later outcomes, right? Mm -hmm. So for the kids that they were able to follow up with and among the kids that were in the diagnostic condition, it was only about 30 to 50 kids, right? But they found that among that sample, there was a really large correlation between the length of time that you waited and SAT scores in both math and verbal SAT. Yeah. And then they also found a correlation between uh, how long you waited and uh, later measures of sort of personality what mothers are basically rating things like how socially adjusted is your kid sort of are they sort of doing what you would think of as sort of good student behavior in school think things like that and they found pretty sizable correlations among all of those yeah. uh, aspects i wonder if i could actually read some of that paper cuz <laughs> It was kind of mind-blowing. It says, according to parental ratings, those who delayed longer are more verbally fluent, use and respond to reason, are attentive and able to concentrate, are planful and think ahead, competent, skillful, resourceful in initiating activities. I mean, it goes on for another 10 lines. (laughs) It's kind of mind-boggling that all of this stuff is apparently correlated in some way to the length of time that somebody can wait for a marshmallow, age four? It is. It is. It's really impressive. And the SAT score correlation was like 0.6. Mm-hmm, which, which is if, pretty high. <laughs> yeah. If you look at a lot of statistics, behavioral science stuff, I mean, you know, that's that's a huge correlation. Yeah. Yeah. So I think uh, just to put that in context for anyone who doesn't read as many papers as I do, I think uh, 0.3 is sort of where, where you start to say, okay, that's weakly correlated, right? And 0.3 to 0.6 is more of a, okay, we're pretty sure there's an, there's an effect here. Yeah. There are these kind of like 
sort of guidelines that are sort of old for how to discuss the size of a correlation. Mm -hmm. But I think everyone's expectations have kind of come down on that over Mm -hmm. time. So if I were to see a 0.3 correlation between something like the marshmallow test and a later SAT score, I would say it was huge. When there are so many (laughs) other potential variables that could impact that SAT score to have a higher impact. Yeah. Yeah. Even if you don't adjust, even if you know that you're getting something that we would say is sort of biased, that's not adjusting for other variables, just Mm -hmm. the fact that you're able to get that kind of signal would be pretty impressive. So, so, So they got something twice the size of that. Yeah. And they, there was also another study that found that the, uh, each additional minute that a preschooler delayed gratification predicted a 0.2 reduction in BMI, in body mass index, in adulthood, yeah. presumably because you're better able to control your food intake. Okay. Yeah, well, that's probably the finding that's the most intuitive, right? Yeah, <laughs> in yeah. All of it. <laughs> and yeah, so it's, it's, that's important to note that they, they kept following this study. So the study kind of had, or they, they kept following that sample of kids from Stanford into adulthood. So the study has had kind of many lives because mm-hmm. I think they found them in adolescence. And then when they saw those results, they thought, okay, we need to stay in touch with these people. So they've sort of kept reporting on them into middle adulthood, as far as I know. And then interest and public interest in the study has kind of risen up at, at different times, which I think seven or eight years ago, it sort of peaked again. And I've been kind of speculating that that was Partly due to probably YouTube, because people could start mm. watching videos of kids taking the marshmallow test. <laughs> Some of them are pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, and, and they're great. You know, if you haven't seen them, you absolutely need to watch them. Uh, they're, they're wonderful. And yes. so, so we could start watching those videos. And then I just think sort of public interest sort of swelled yet again. And, and we started having these theories like grit come mm-hmm. online, which is probably related. Yeah. Yeah. So, so now we've been in kind of a phase where, you know, the marshmallow test is wildly famous again. And it's just, it's really unusual for psychology studies to have that kind of attention and that Mm -hmm. sort of lifespan. Yeah. Okay. All right. So I want to sort of step back from the longitudinal stuff for a minute and go back to some of the potential criticisms and clarifications of that original study. Now we talked about the the small sample size drawn from a very non- representative sample of the general population. Mm-hmm. I know that when Professor Duckworth did some work on this, she did use stickers instead of marshmallows. And she found that the amount of time a child could wait for more stickers was actually only very weakly related to a child's performance in a real life delay. And of course, that mm-hmm. made me immediately think of Yuri Bronfenbrenner, who said that developmental psychology is the science of strange behavior of children in strange situations with strange adults for the briefest possible period of time. So I I wonder if we could talk for a minute about the real world applicability of the marshmallow test. Yeah, well, and we we mentioned in the paper sort of that there's been a lot of work done on the marshmallow test, especially in the past probably 15 or 20 years. And a lot of it is really sort of digging at the question, what does this thing measure? Mm -hmm. And how indicative is this test of a kid's self-control or willpower, right? And, you know, those are kind of different constructs, right? We, We say them in the same breath, but we could imagine sort of self-control and, and, and willpower not necessarily describing the same sort of characteristics in a, in a human being. And Angela Duckworth has done a lot of really good work to some of it with, with this sample that we use, trying to figure out, like, is it is, is what's important about delayed gratification sort of a, a cognitive component? So is it, Michelle had theorized that it was sort of the kid's ability to come up with these strategies to help them delay gratification. You know, if, if a kid is able to sort of recognize that there's this impulsivity rising up within them and they're able to sort of quiet that down by singing a song or distracting themselves by thinking about something else. Or if you see the videos, they'll 
close their eyes really tightly to not look at the marshmallow. <laughs> he sort of suspected maybe that it was sort of a cognitive ability that was really driving the prediction. And Duckworth has looked into that, and she's found sort of evidence that statistically the way we do these things is with these kind of factor analyses, and we see if, like, the gratification delay test sort of relates more to cognitive ability or relates more to maybe measures of kids' personality. And she kind of found evidence that it was maybe relating to both, mm-hmm. both things. And yeah. so, and then I think another version of the study that's been talked about a lot recently and has been talked about in context of our findings too, is some researchers thought, well, maybe trust is a big element here. Mm-hmm. And if you undermine a kid's trust in the task, like you, uh, you have the experimenter sort of uh, lie tell a lie, right? And the kid views them as lying before they then tell them that they're going to get an extra marshmallow if they wait. If you give the kid a reason not to trust the experimenter, <laughs> then the kid won't wait, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Which is a really sort of important insight, right? Yeah. And I think the point of that was that, you know, there are kids that may come from environments, depending on their home life or even their life at school, where their trust in their environment and their trust in adults has been eroded. And if the future isn't easily predictable, then it may make sense not to wait. And it may actually be the rational response. So yeah, so there's been all sorts of really interesting stuff that's cropped up around the marshmallow test. And, And our study doesn't directly, I think it's kind of situated within that literature, but we were really kind of after the longitudinal component. But all of that, I think, is really important to keep in mind. Yeah. For sure. And uh, Professor Duckworth, I think, also found a relationship between shyness and the findings because she, I think she hypothesized that if a child is shy, they're going to freeze up in the face of a researcher that they don't know, they haven't met before, who's giving them instructions. And so that could be a link as well, a a reason that's completely unrelated to their ability to delay gratification that could explain Mm -hmm. some of the findings. Mm -hmm. So, And then another one that I found really interesting was the way that you present the rewards can impact the results. (laughs) It was a study that I think presented a sticker to a child and said, here's the sticker you can have right now if you want it. And then they put four more stickers in that same pool. Instead of having one sticker on one side and five stickers on the other, they put all five in the same pool to identify the the reward you can get if you wait. And that one actually found that the three-year-olds outperformed the four-year-olds on their desire to wait for five stickers. <laughs> and so, I mean, that blew my mind again. It, it, you, What you think you're looking at is changes in cognitive processes as children get older. And actually what it might be is an artifact of how the study was designed. <laughs> sure, absolutely. So, yeah. absolutely. So, so there's definitely a lot going on with this. So, okay, so th- there are some of the criticisms and ways that we need to be sure that we, things we need to keep in mind as we're we're looking at the results of these studies. And so I think what it's tempting to do and, and what policymakers have attempted to do is to transfer what we've learned from these studies to academic outcomes. And one of the papers on this topic started out, and I'll, I'll quote it, an ideal student who routinely goes home after school has a snack, studies until dinner, i.e. stays on task, then continues studying until bedtime is likely more academically successful than one who is not focused on schoolwork. And I think that what we're trying to do here is to take the results of the, the marshmallow study, which is 
pretty intrinsically motivated. I want that marshmallow. <laughs> and schoolwork yeah. is something that is very extrinsically motivated because either your parents are telling you you have to do your homework or you have to get the grade because a lot of students don't know what they want to do with their lives. And so I wonder how valid is it to take this this look at what seems to be intrinsic motivation and apply it to a situation that is very much more concerned with extrinsic motivation. What do you think? Well, it's a great it's a great point. And I think that the way that the test has often been interpreted is that you're able at age four, if you kind of gain this skill, that it becomes this kind of internalized personality dimension. So that when you're in a situation where you know that you could do something now that may be fun or may be gratifying, but you can wait a little bit longer and sort of postpone it and get back to work, that you're going to be more successful. So we kind of, I think you're right. I think it's important nuance to think about sort of whether there's an intrinsic or an extrinsic reward. But I think the story about the marshmallow test has always been so appealing, probably, especially in the United States, because it kind of speaks to this sort of pull yourself up by your bootstraps, yeah. right? <laughs> Ability to kind of take control over your, over your environment and over yeah. your life, sort of keep your head down and, and work hard, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And, you know, I don't want to put words in Walter Michelle's mouth because I think sometimes he's been a lot more careful when he's written about this, not surprisingly, than when other people have written about mm-hmm. it. But <laughs> I've mentioned in a, to a few other folks that I've talked to that as I was kind of going through the responses to the study when we released it, I found this, this like charter school, I think, in Houston that there's like a, a part of their website. It's a pretty large school and it's a, there's a part of their website that's got information for parents and they have sort of advice to parents. And they put on there something, I'm going to mess up the quote, but basically the effect, it's the effect of if, if you can teach your kid one thing, teach them delay of gratification. <laughs> and, then they, and then they start to talk about the results of the Walter Michelle uh-huh. longitudinal work. And that's, that's exactly the thing that we were, that we were after, right? Yeah. That's, that's what our focus was on. Yeah. Okay. So, so let's start to get into that then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you describe your study as a, quote, conceptual replication of the marshmallow study, although mm-hmm. when you read about it in the media, that has usually been shortened to replication, <laughs> for example, in okay. the press release on your study, as well as in the Atlantic article that was published a few days ago. What is the difference and why does it matter? Yeah, I, and I think it's crucial, and I'm learning that it's more crucial. I think I had been <laughs> probably a little too uh, blasé with that early on or a little too casual. So you can imagine, and if your listeners are sort of familiar, there's this phrase that goes around right now in psychology and also in, in medical science too, but in the social sciences, which is where I work, I've, it's been a big deal. There's this thing called the replication crisis mm-hmm. or, the, or the reproducibility crisis. Which is basically to say, it's it's hard to pin down exactly what that means, but the gist of it is that if you that what happens is we sort of publish really flashy findings and we talk about them and make a lot out of them, and then someone else will come along and try to reproduce those findings and not be able to do it, mm-hmm. and so that leaves you thinking that the findings from the original study were somehow inflated or big by chance, and there's a lot of reasons why that could happen. So everybody now kind of agrees that replication is important. Once you start thinking about doing a replication, you, you realize how difficult it is to kind of define what you're doing. Because in one sense, a replication would be sort of in the most narrow d- defined way. Well, there, there could be one where you just take someone else's data and you just analyze the statistics on your computer, <laughs> right? You just mm-hmm. do the statistical work on your computer. Yeah, which some people do just, do. <laughs> yeah, and it's like kind of like same data, same question, my computer mm-hmm. yep. kind of thing, right? 
So that's a really narrow version of a replication. Then, then you could do something where you basically do the exact same study, so the very same methods, say, so in this case, it would be to give the very same version of the marshmallow test and follow up the exact same way, right, years later, ask the very same questions of parents and report on that. That would be another kind of replication that's also fairly narrow, but you just do it with a different sample of kids. Mm-hmm. And if right? you're, if the original study happened fairly recently, then you might expect to get a pretty similar result, although I would expect, given the distance of time from the original yeah. study, even if you use the same script and the, say, and the Bing nursery, I think, is still there, even if you pulled from that population, your results would probably be different. I mean, just for example, kids had a lot less sugar in their diets in those days, so that could potentially impact it. So No, that's exactly right. So, And there's all sorts of historical differences and cohort differences Mm -hmm. that you would expect to find. And then what we did, I think we're a little closer to this, which I think this is probably what the field actually needs, although you can make an argument that we need all of these things, is, you know, let's look at the conclusions of a study or look at the the way a study has been interpreted and sort of the, the, the knowledge that's been gleaned from it. And let's sort of take a different approach to trying to arrive at the same conclusion. Right. Mm -hmm. So let's sort of see if we can go after the same question and maybe we differ and vary the methods and the sample as well. So that's I think we're a little closer to that uh, than we are to like a really hardcore straight up. We just did the same thing, but with different kids. Yeah. So that's why we the title of the paper and and I thank the reviewers of the article or the, or the, the action editor of the article at Psych Science, I think was the one that suggested we do this. We called it a conceptual replication, mm-hmm. right? Because really we're kind of trying to replicate conceptually the same thing that the original study was doing, but we had to come at it both due to limitations and because we wanted, we actually wanted to change the statistical methods from a few different angles. Okay. All right. So let's talk about data then, because yeah. I think you didn't actually collect this data yourselves. It came from a government data set and that worked really well in your favor because the government has the money to fund these massive <laughs> studies that would be incredibly difficult for a few researchers to get money for. But I think that the government scientists are also made some design decisions that impacted your findings, right? Can you tell us about those? That's right. So this study was collected and conducted by a team of developmental psychologists who first went to NIH and asked for funding to follow a fairly large sample of kids from 10 different sites across the U.S. from birth into, I think originally they were probably planning to go into sort of early childhood, like around age three or four. Mm -hmm. And that's the National, sorry, the National Institute for Health, right? Yeah, the National Institute for Health, which is sort of the scientific arm of the federal government or one of of the scientific arms Mm -hmm. of the federal government. And so they got the money to do this. It was mainly to study childcare, And uh, there were a lot of debates happening at that time around whether childcare was good for kids or sending your daycare or sending your kid to daycare for the entire workday at a young age was, was maybe would have adverse developmental effects. So they, they were really interested in this question. So they s- collected a ton of information on parents and kids at the time of the kid's birth. And then they followed the parents and kids into early childhood and collected information on the kids' early environments. And fortunately for us, they, they decided to do this marshmallow <laughs> test. <Yay>. <laughs> <laughs> Probably because the longitudinal, early longitudinal findings that from 1990 had just come out. So these kids were sampled in uh, at birth in 1991. So the the longitudinal findings from the Michelle studies mm-hmm. were, were just getting publicized in yep. the early 90s. So 
So they, they thought it would be an important measure to collect. So they did the marshmallow test with kids at age four. And then they kept going back to NIH and getting additional funds to keep to keep following the kids into adolescence. So and she did many waves of data collection in between birth and age 15, which is what, what we ultimately looked at as our main time of the outcome measures in, in adolescence. So what's nice about this data set is, like I said, they collected a bunch of information on parents and their families, which allowed us to do the kind of statistical controlling that, that we can get into in a second, which I thought was really the key contribution of this study. And because they were collecting a whole bunch of measures and the data set was not at all focused on the marshmallow test, they gave a sort of shorter version of the marshmallow test. And they stopped the test at seven minutes. So if a kid waited for seven minutes, then the test ended. Mm -hmm. And we were at first really concerned about this and worried that that would sort of preclude us being able to do what we wanted to do. Because the original children had waited much longer, right? Some had, right? I mean, you can see in some of his original studies, he reports an average wait time of like one minute. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you if you noticed that in some yeah. of the early yeah. 70s. <laughs> and then over time, I'm, it's, it's interesting to think about what may have happened, but as maybe he got better at giving the test, it's, kids were waiting a little bit longer. And then in the later versions of the test, to my knowledge, they, some he was letting some kids wait as long as 15 minutes yeah. or maybe 20 minutes, mm-hmm. which if you sit in a room alone, Staring at a marshmallow. Oh my gosh, it's a long period of time. (laughs) Even if you're an adult, right? So if you're an adult, you probably can't stay off your phone for 20 minutes, Mm -hmm. right? Long enough to sit in a room. So so anyway, so they stopped the test at seven minutes. And when we first started analyzing the data, we wanted to figure out if we could still learn anything from this, even knowing that the test had been capped at seven minutes. And we grew more and more confident as we analyzed the data that we could and that we could uh, do what we wanted to do. So we can talk about that in a second. So kids take the marshmallow test at age four, and then they were followed periodically up to age 15. And I think they're still planning on doing another uh, round of data collection in, in, in adulthood. But we had data through age 15. And so at age 15, they measured uh, math and reading achievement. It, it wasn't a self-report of SAT scores. A lot of kids haven't even taken the SAT by that age. But they did a sort of math and reading test. It's called the uh, Woodcock-Johnson. This is a really famous uh, cognitive battery that has been studied for a long time. And so we used that to measure uh, academic achievement at age 15. And then there were also mother reports of kids' behavior. So there was sort of a a report of sort of things that seemed like antisocial behavior, kind of acting out at school that mothers reported on. Then there is a kind of something called internalizing, which can be thought of sort of broadly as sort of like depressive uh, behavior, depressive symptoms. And then we also looked at kid direct measures of behavior directly measured from the kids themselves. So the kids reported on risky behaviors, things like things that we think are are risky behaviors for teenagers. So drinking alcohol, smoking marijuana, sexual risk taking. And then kids also reported on their own sort of impulse behaviors. And we actually looked at someone, a developmental psychologist suggested we look at this thing called the stoplight task, Mm -hmm. which is basically a sort of it's kind of like a game where a kid is trying to get from point A to point B, and they're told they'll be rewarded if they get there as fast as possible. And they encounter stoplights along the way. And the task is really looking at whether they break uh, and slow down or stop when they see a yellow or red light, or if they try to speed through the stoplight, right, and risk getting into a car crash. And that's kind of a measure of sort of impulsivity 
and risk taking as well. So anyway, so we looked at all of that mm-hmm. at age 15 to try to, like we said, kind of do a conceptual replication of that original Michelle longitudinal study where they looked at both SAT scores and then kind of this broad, like you, you read off the results earlier, the mm. kind of broad dimensions of behavior and personality. Yeah. And so, okay, so that's a ton of variables there. Right, <laughs> And yeah. I am not a statistician. <laughs> Fortunately, I know people are, sure. and one of them read this study for me. And I believe that when a researcher, quote, controls for a lot of variables, that can impact the results by making outcomes that would otherwise appear significant look insignificant. Or actually, I think it's the other way around, isn't it? Look insignificant. They should be no, insignificant. No, no, right. Oh, I, got, I did you get got it right. right. Okay, yeah. thank you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so in a language that a layperson like me could understand, <laughs> can you help us figure out what choices did you make here and what uh, impacts did that have on the results? Yeah. So this, like I said, was, I thought, the key sort of invention of our study. And so all those variables that I just listed off measured at age 15, those mm-hmm. are the outcomes, yeah. right? That's That's what we're trying to see does waiting longer on the marshmallow test impact or affect all of these outcome measures, right, at at age 15? So the control variables are all things that were measured primarily before the kid took the marshmallow test, Mm -hmm. right, or measured at the same time that the kid took the marshmallow test. So either measured at age four or measured before. And why are these important? This This is all about interpretation. So It may be the case that the marshmallow test predicts later achievement or later outcomes, but you don't know if it predicts later outcomes because the marshmallow test is kind of symptomatic of other things going on in a kid's life. Like, say, kids that have really great, attentive, structured parenting environments are able to wait longer on the marshmallow test, and those same kids also have many markers of success later on in mm-hmm. life. Yeah. But it's not really the marshmallow test mm-hmm. that is driving the later success. It's actually the parenting. Yeah. Right? That's what probably everyone listening to your podcast would want to believe would hope, right? <laughs> that it's the parenting that's really shaping well, everything. Yeah, for sure. And so you you all these things that are sort of the result of parenting and you can think that those are the things that are causing the later the later outcomes, but actually you would be sort of making what we call sort of a confounding error, right? In statistics, like there's a third variable that's really explaining everything. Mm -hmm. And the third variable is what's explaining being good at the marshmallow test. And it's also explaining the markers of success later on. So what we want to do is try to control for as many of these sort of third variables as we could. So we were able to take measures of race and ethnicity. So we had what's the sort of identified race and ethnicity of the kid, the gender, Measures of family income, mother's education, measures of taken of the kid at birth. So like the kid's birth weight, the, the mothers also report on a very early measure of the kid's temperament, which is like, was this kid a fussy baby mm-hmm. or a sort of uh, quiet, easy to please baby? They also, we also had a really uh, pretty early measure of kids' cognitive ability taken at age 24 months. And we had this thing that was an invention for the data set that we used, which was a measure of the home environment, where an observer actually came into the home environment and observed the kid interacting with the parent, right? And was looking for sort of things known to be sort of positive parenting uh, behaviors, as well as markers of having an enriching home environment, like a lot of children's books in the home and toys for the kid to play with, things like that. Mm -hmm. So we first looked at the relationship between delay of gratification and later outcomes, not controlling for anything, right? So 
we didn't adjust for any of those other variables. And we just looked at the raw, do kids who wait longer have better outcomes? And we saw, sure enough, that they had higher achievement scores on math and reading at age 15. But they these relationships were much smaller than what was in the original uh, paper. Oh, really? Okay. Right. Yeah. So it was, it was, I, I don't want to mess it up. I'm not looking at my paper in front of me right now. But <laughs> you don't have it, it memorized? <laughs> I know I should by now. It was, I think, you know, I'm fairly certain it was less than half the size Whoa. of what Michelle and uh, Shoda had reported. Yeah. Although, like I said earlier, that's still something, right? Yeah. And, you know, we were still impressed with that correlation, even though it was half the size. And then surprisingly, and one of the really surprising findings of the paper was that we didn't find any relationship, even without any statistical controls for any of the behavioral outcomes. So all those behavioral outcomes that I just listed off, like the stoplight task Mm -hmm. and kids reporting on their risky behaviors and the mother's report of the kids' behaviors, none of that. None of it. No. I think there may have been one lone variable that had a uh, significant effect on it, but no, for the most part, we found no effects. Okay. Why? (laughs) What's going on? That was really puzzling. And that's, you know, I mean, we weren't expecting to find that. I think our prior hypothesis going in was that we would have found bigger effects for the behavioral outcomes than for the cognitive outcomes. Because I think we were going in thinking of the delay of gratification as being kind of a personality or behavioral. Like, you know, the economists think of these things like non-cognitive skills rather than cognitive skills, which psychologists hate because they would say everything cognitive. But so we were kind of expecting that going in, but we were surprised that we didn't find it. And that was just one of the sort of interesting puzzling findings of the paper. So we focused most of our analyses. We, we then split our sample and looked primarily at kids whose mothers had not completed college. And that was about 550-something kids who were in the sample who had the marshmallow test, had measures of later outcomes, whose mothers had, by birth, not completed college. We did that for two reasons. One, because we thought it was a conceptually interesting sample to focus on, because all of the Michelle stuff, as we said earlier, mm-hmm. was was mainly derived off of a sample of kids who whose mothers uh, were part of the Stanford community. Yeah. Right. So we thought that it was really complementary to sort of look at a sample of kids whose mothers hadn't completed college. And because, you know, that that group, when we talk about sort of educational policy and when we talk about interventions, we're often thinking about sort of more di- kids from more disadvantaged backgrounds, mm-hmm. right? And so that was also, uh, uh, we thought, sort of an important group of kids to look at. We also did it because of the seven-minute measurement problem that I mentioned earlier. So among the kids whose mothers had completed college, almost 70% of them hit the seven-minute mark on the measure. So that means that they waited the full length of time and, and the measure ended, right? So that the marshmallow test ended. So from a statistician's point of view, that's a major problem because mm-hmm. you need variation yeah. in order to do all of this, right? And so if, if most of the kids are sitting at seven minutes, you don't really know who's better at delaying gratification among those kids, yeah. right? Because they're all sitting at seven. So in the lower socioeconomic status sample, the, the kids of mothers who hadn't completed college, they were much less likely to hit the ceiling. So I think only about 40% of them waited the full length of time. And then among the other 60% of them that didn't wait for seven minutes, there was really nice kind of variation, right, in how long they waited. So there was like kind of what we say in statistics, like a nice distribution. So there was sort of kids that didn't wait at all, then kids that waited for one minute or two, three, four, five, six. So we could really get a much sort of better gradient of gratification delay. 
So, so there was kind of the conceptual reason that we focused on that sample, and then there was also kind of the statistical measurement reason. So what we found, like I said, was that waiting longer among those kids did predict later achievement. And so then we started introducing these control variables. So what we did was we sort of added to the model measures of all the measures that I listed off earlier. So measures of the home environment, measures of the kid's birth weight, uh, race, ethnicity, gender, income, family income measured between birth and uh, age four, that early cognitive measure taken at 24 months. And so what that model does is it says, let's take two kids who have the same parenting environment, the same race and, race and uh, ethnicity, the same gender, the same early cognitive skills. And let's say that one of them is able to delay gratification a little bit longer than the other. Does that difference matter, right? Once you've set all those other things equal, then does the, the difference in delayed gratification actually matter over and above all of those other factors? And what we found was a much smaller, again, prediction to to academic achievement. It was still statistically significant, but it was fairly small. We had a fairly big sample, so so a small effect could still be statistically significant. So the size of that correlation got much smaller than in the model where we didn't control for anything, Mm -hmm. which means that those other factors were largely driving the prediction to later academic achievement. Okay. And we and we still found no prediction to the later behavioral outcomes. Then we tried one more model that was a more rigorous controlled model, which is where we also controlled for measures taken at preschool, so measures taken at the same time as the marshmallow test of kids' math achievement, reading achievement, and sort of a measure of their behavioral adjustment at that time. So that's basically saying, like, if we also control for sort of other characteristics of the kid at age four, then does being able to delay gratification matter over and above their kind of general cognitive ability and their behavioral adjustment at that time? And then we found that it was a pretty well-estimated zero to later (laughs) academic achievement, right? So what we like to, you know, we had a pretty decent confidence interval around that effect, and it was not statistically significant, uh, wow. any, which means that, you know, it just means that, again, it doesn't mean the delay of gratification doesn't predict. It just means that when you sort of control for other characteristics of the kid, mm-hmm. you delay of gratification doesn't seem to be sort of uniquely important on top of those other characteristics. Right. Okay. All right. So we're, we're heading rapidly here towards where I want to go, which is what message should we take home from the body of work on this? And I'm, I'm going to tell you what message I take away from it, and then I want yeah. you to tell me if I'm right. Okay. <laughs> so, so it sure. seems to me as though the message is that some rich children can better resist a marshmallow than others, and that of those rich children, the ones who can resist the marshmallow may be more likely to have better life outcomes, as best we can tell from a pretty tiny sample size. But we really don't know as much about how poor children will respond to the marshmallow. And we might not even be able to teach poor children to resist the marshmallow because of how their life experiences have shaped them. And even if we could, that resisting the marshmallow is unlikely to be the key or even an important key in helping them to achieve better life outcomes. In contrast, I should say, to the Houston school that you mentioned that's telling (laughs) parents, if you teach your child nothing else, you should teach them to resist a marshmallow. So are, are you taking the same message out of all of this as I am? I think much of what you said is, is highly plausible okay. and could be interpreted from both our study mainly, you know, and, and some of the other ones that we talked about earlier. I think the main takeaway is sort of what you said at the end, which is question of even if we can teach this, 
and we decide that we should, is teaching this going to make much of a difference? Yeah. Right. And that's where I, that's where I think our study, it really has something to say. Mm-hmm. And it sort of is saying that if you were to create a program that say provides kids with strategies to delay gratification, right. You give them strategies to help them figure out how to do better at the marshmallow test, but you don't change other aspects of their life. Mm-hmm. Right. Whether that be their sort of general cognitive ability or other behavioral aspects or, or their poverty. parenting environment <laughs> or right. Or their parenting environment or their socioeconomic situation, family yep. income, mother's education. If you don't change any of that stuff, the fact that you change their ability to lay gratification probably isn't likely to have much effect. Yeah. Right. And so I think that to me is is the key finding. That's not to say that it's not a worthwhile life skill. Mm-hmm. Or that there aren't times when you need to be able to do this. I mean, certainly any adult in the working world today who's constantly online in front of their computer and is faced with, you know, notification after notification and email and something to click on, you know, you're constantly kind of faced with this task really all day long. I'm not saying that it's not important at all. What I'm saying is just, is it something that we should be worried about teaching four-year-olds? Mm-hmm. Right? In isolation. If we want, in isolation. <laughs> yeah. If we want to really get important uh, developmental outcomes later on, I think that's where we would say that's probably not the first thing that we would choose. Yeah. Gosh, <laughs> right? I hope there are policymakers listening right now who, uh, <laughs> preferably ones who have uh, gotten growth mindset instituted in schools in California and are rating teachers on <laughs> yeah, children's well, growth mindsets. And Right. And I, so, and I also want to be careful that the model that we were sort of had different interpretations for the different models that had different variables controlled. So, you know, the model that just controlled for kids' background characteristics from their home and family, that early measure of cognitive ability, but it didn't control for sort of other factors measured at the same time. This is a little bit nuanced, but, you know, we still did find a statistically significant prediction to later achievement for the gratification delay test, for the marshmallow test in, with that model. Which to us meant that, to the best we could tell with this data, now this data does not really allow for causal claims to be ironclad. So you can't, mm-hmm. you know, you have to kind of say all of this with the big caveat that nothing here was experimental. Yeah. So we can't say that delay of gratification caused the better outcomes caused is what you're anything. saying. Yep. Right. So even though we're trying to scratch at that by mm-hmm. introducing controls, we're yep. certainly trying to push ourselves in a causal direction we're still not all the way there, right? An experimental study is really the only way to, to really start to, to know. Mm-hmm. But the fact that controlling for the background characteristics didn't kill all of the prediction to later achievement suggested that if you had an intervention that probably changed gratification delay, but also changed other aspects about the kid yep. at the same time, broader aspects of the kid, broader behavioral and cognitive capacities of the kid at the same time, that may actually, you know, we can't rule out that that wouldn't have an effect, right? So, but then you're thinking about probably delay of gratification as a component of something broader and larger rather than just a sort of narrow intervention that's just teaching that skill. Does mm-hmm. that, does that make sense? Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So I think the ultimate take home message then for parents is don't worry too much about the marshmallow test. <laughs> exactly. it's, it's a good skill to have, but don't freak out if your child can't resist gratification yet. They've got a long way to go. And there are many other skills that are also important. No, that's exactly right. If, yeah. if, if you've got a four-year-old who doesn't want to wait, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
you don't need to be too concerned. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. And on that note, thank you so much for helping us to understand all this and really get to the bottom of what's going on. I'm so grateful for your time. It was fun. Thank you. And so uh, listeners can find all the references for today's episode, and there are lots of them, at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash marshmallow, if you can resist it. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Your Parenting Mojo. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes and sign up for our mailing list at yourparentingmojo.com to receive a free gift. Seven relationship-based strategies to support your children's development while making parenting just a little bit easier on you. For more respectful, research-based parenting ideas to help kids thrive, we'll see you next time on Your Parenting Mojo.